Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac Podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's Word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org. If you have your Bible, I'd love to have you turn to Revelation 14. Revelation 14. And I'm looking forward to be able to share this with you. I finally got a passage that doesn't have to do with blood and violence. (laughs) I'm very excited about this. While you're turning there, let me just kind of uh, review, bring you up to snuff with this. Chapter 12 through 14, which we've been in the last few weeks, is a parenthetical period, kind of uh, another interlude, where the chronology of Revelation stops, okay? In other words, time is not progressing. And we've kind of done a backward look, look, a backward look. We were introduced in this interlude to seven main characters of this seven-year tribulation period. In chapter 12, we saw the woman who was Israel. We saw the dragon, which was Satan. We saw the male child, which was Christ. Uh, We saw Michael, the archangel, and his angels. And then in chapter 13, we saw the beast that comes out of the sea, which is the Antichrist. Last week, Pastor Chad ex- uh, explained to you the beast that comes out of the land, which is the false prophet. So those were six of them, and today we look at the seventh character or characters of the tribulation. And you want to remember, during this time, at this point, the sound, uh, we're at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, Revelation chapter 11. The details that describe what the blowing of that trumpet is going to bring, which includes The seven bowl judgments, which includes the coming of Christ, which includes the establishment of his kingdom, which includes the new heavens and the new earth, which includes all of the rest of Revelation. That has not begun again. That will continue in chapter 15. So time will start again chronologically when we open up chapter 15 and go through the end of Revelation. Let me give you just a few pointers on chapter 14, just some things to think about. I know, Pastor Chad, we plan on taking the next couple weeks, three weeks maybe, to go through chapter 14 with you. Chapter 14 has to do with three visions that John saw. And all of chapter 14, I'm going to use this word again, Pastor Chad introduced it to you several weeks ago, is proleptic, P-R-O-L-P-T-I-C. It's in a proleptic tense. And what that means, it is something that is in the future, but it's being spoken of as having already been accomplished. And so as we look at chapter 14, these things that are still future really are already done. They've already been accomplished. That's how they're being spoken of. So in verses 1 through 5, which is the passage we'll look at today, there is a vision of Christ and his triumphant followers. In verses 6 through 13, John sees another vision of three declarations by three different angels. And then in verses 14 through 20, it closes with the vision of God's final judgment on the earth. So chapter 14, where we begin today, begins with the return of Christ. And what's interesting, as we look at verse 1, he is seen as already come, and he's already conquered. In other words, it's over. It really doesn't happen until chapter 19, but it appears here as though it's already done. Look at verse 1. Then I looked, John says, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. We remember who the lamb is, right? We go back to chapter 5 and verse 6, and there he was a lamb slain. It is Christ. 
Here he's a lamb coronated. He's a king. And the fact that he is standing symbolizes conquest. He has come. He has conquered. He is establishing his kingdom on earth as it has been in heaven. And I love this. I love this. This is, I mean, this is so refreshing right here. This is so uh, encouraging that God takes the, the moment right here to pause and to show us victory that has happened even before it happens. I mean, we've, we've been through some gruesome stuff in Revelation, haven't we? I mean, we've just come out of talking about Satan, two beasts, persecution, martyrdom, oppression, darkness. What a refreshing pause these five verses are because they're a reminder to us that even in the midst of the darkest moments of our lives, even in the midst of the darkest events and struggles and battles, we can emerge victorious because of Christ. This is a great, great picture. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, we know that because of where he's standing. Look at verse 1 again. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Where is that? Mount Zion, I believe here, is a reference to the earthly Jerusalem. The earthly Jerusalem. Now, some of your commentators say it's the heavenly Jerusalem that the writer of Hebrews mentions in Hebrews 12, 22. But I have a problem with that because if that's true, then that means that the 144,000 that were sealed in chapter 7 died and went to heaven. So what good did the sealing do, right? He's pictured here with 144,000. By the way, the Bible talks much about the fact that Christ will reign on the earth from a Jerusalem, a earthly Jerusalem. Let me show you a couple of verses. Psalm 48, verses 1 and 2 says this, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the what? Earth. Not the joy of all the heaven, the joy of all the earth. What? Mount Zion. That's Jerusalem. In the far north, the city of the great king. Who's the great king? Christ. Isaiah chapter 24, verse 23 Isaiah writes this, Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. This is talking about the day of the Lord, which is what the tribulation period is. The moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. Jesus' earthly reign from Jerusalem is a fulfillment of many biblical prophetic passages in Scripture. For instance, in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, says this, On that day, what day? The day when he returns, Revelation 19, the day when he comes back. On that day, his feet, literal feet, shall stand on the Mount of Olives. Where's the Mount of Olives? It's Jerusalem. They'll stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. In Psalm chapter 2, which is a psalm totally of Christ, it's a messianic psalm that speaks about Christ's coming reign during the millennial, millennial, I'll get it out, millennial period. In Psalm 2.6 says this, as for me, uh, this is God speaking, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now what I think is significant for this morning is I want you to notice who's standing with Christ. He's pictured, pictured as standing. He's pictured as already come. He's pictured as already conquered. He's pictured as already establishing his millennial kingdom. But notice who's standing with him. Go back to verse 1. And yes, we are going to get out of verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion and the Lamb, and with him who? 144,000. 
thousand. Does that ring a bell? We met them back in chapter 7. The 144,000 are the seventh character of the tribulation. The seventh character of the tribulation. They're the Jewish evangelists. 12,000 chosen from each of the 12 tribes of Israel who during the tribulation proclaim the gospel and bring about the greatest revival, the greatest evangelistic revival in world history in a matter of seven years. As a matter of fact, their effect upon the world is seen in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, and verse 13 and 14. Look at it up here. After this, John says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. I mean, this, this, this crowd is so massive, you can't even put a number on them. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, that, that's, that's all the ethnicities of the world. And they're standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They're clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Verse 13, then one of the elders said to John, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? And John said, Sir, you know. And the elder said to John this, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Wow. An innumerable number of people who come to Christ in a matter of seven years. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's symbolic language for salvation. Now that was their effect. What we see today in verses 1 through 5 is their lives, their character. These are the men who would answer the challenge of the sixth seal. Remember, if you go back to Revelation chapter 6 and verse 17, we ended that chapter with this challenge for the great day of their wrath. And their wrath means the wrath of the Lamb and the wrath of the one who's seated on the throne, who is God the Father. So the great day of God the Father and God the Son's wrath has come. And the question is this, who can stand? Who can stand? On the earth, nobody can stand. Unbelie of unbelievers, nobody's going to be able to stand. But now, let us read verse 1 of chapter 14 again. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and who else stood with him? 144,000. They stood. They made it through. The worst time in world history. I've said this many times. You think it's bad now? You ain't seen nothing yet. The worst time in world history. These are the ones who were victorious over Satan. These are the ones who are victorious over sin. These were the ones who are victorious over the Antichrist and the false prophet and the world system. And I think it begs us to ask this question, what made them so victorious? Because they are no different than we are. They had the seal of God on their forehead, but they were humans, right? They were humans with a sinful nature, just like you and I had a sinful nature. They were humans that still struggled with fleshly desires, just like you and I struggle with things of the flesh. Who, what made them victorious? Matter of fact, maybe a better question is that we should look at it this way. Do you want to be victorious? Isn't that something that all of us strive for? We want to be victorious. We want to live lives of victorious freedom in and through and for our Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe this. I believe that what made these 144,000 victorious is what makes us victorious. So the question is this. What does it take to be a victorious Christian? And I think in this passage, there are seven marks of a victorious Christian. So let's look at them. First of all, 
Victorious Christians belong to the Father. This is foundational. Victorious Christians belong to the Father. Look at verse 1 again, and I promise you this will be the last time. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him the 144,000. And now this, who had his name, Christ's name, the Lamb's name, and his Father's name written on their foreheads. Do you know why, Christian friend, there are a lot of professing believers who live in constant defeat in their lives? Why there are a lot of professing believers who don't finish the race, who don't finish the course? A lot of professing believers that fall away, that live defeated lives, that live in bondage with no freedom. One of the reasons for that, not the only reason, but one of the reasons for that is because they really do not belong to the Father. They are like what the Apostle Paul described in 2 Timothy 3.5, that they have the appearance of godliness, but they deny the power. They appear like Christians, but they deny the power. Because they've never come into a personal relationship with the Father through faith in Jesus Christ. They bear the name Christian, but they don't have the name of Christ and his Father. Now, for these 144,000, the name of Christ and his Father on their foreheads is a reference to the seal that was given them back in chapter 7. In chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, we read this. One of the angels said to the other four angels who were at the four different corners of the earth, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Please notice that. On their foreheads. So the seal was on their foreheads. Where was the name of Christ, the Lamb, and the Father? On their foreheads. We're talking about the same group of people. That was the seal. The seal was the name of Christ and of the Father written on their foreheads. And I believe that to have the name of Christ and his Father written on their foreheads as a seal spoke of two truths about the seal. First of all, the seal spoke of possession. It spoke of possession. Those who were sealed belonged to God. They were his property. They were his possession. And as long as the seal, now listen to this, as long as the seal remained, what was sealed belonged to the one who sealed it. That would be God. Now even though in the case in chapter 7 it was an angel who sealed them, he was sent from God. The angel had God's authority, so it was God's seal on these 144,000. They belonged to him. But not only does the seal speak of possession, the seal also speaks of protection. Nobody could touch or alter or harm or destroy what a king had sealed. Remember when King Darius had Daniel thrown in the lion's den and a huge stone put over the top of it and they sealed it. Only Darius could remove the seals. Until he removed the seals, that stone was going to remain there. Why do we see in this chapter these 144,000 men standing with Christ on Mount Zion? It is because God sealed them. He protected them. He kept them. Whatever the king sealed was his responsibility. God sealed them. It was his responsibility to keep them. Now, listen. You and I, as children of the living God, are also sealed. And our seal is the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 says this, In Him, Paul says, in Him, in Christ, 
You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were what? You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Your sealing happened at the moment that you received Christ. When you heard the gospel and believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean for us? It means the same thing. Being sealed by the Spirit means that we belong to Christ and to his Father. We are God's possession. Paul said to Titus in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, talking about Jesus, he said, who gave himself, this is Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own, what? Possession. Who is zealous for good works. We belong to him. Peter, writing in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Wow, that's something, isn't it? Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So being sealed by the Spirit means that we belong to Christ and to the Father. But not only that, secondly, being sealed by the Spirit means that it is His responsibility, Christ's responsibility, God's responsibility to protect us, to keep us. Jesus understood that with His disciples in John 17, 12, in His high priestly prayer. He said this, while I was with them, I kept them, I kept them, I guarded them, I preserved them, I protected them in your name which you have given me, I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, Judas, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Paul, writing to the church of Philippi, in Philippians 1.6 says this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, who began the good work in you? Did you begin the good work in you? The Holy Spirit began the good work in you. Christ began the good work with you. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's his responsibility. Peter wrote this in 1 Peter 1.5, speaking of believers, he said, we are kept by God's power, or excuse me, who by God's power are being guarded or kept through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And that great doxology in the last verse, one of the last verses in Jude says this, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. We, Christian friend, belong to the Father through faith in Jesus Christ. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit, and this is the basis of our victory. Now, you can be sealed and not live a victorious Christian life, but you cannot live a victorious Christian life if you're not sealed. You have to be sealed. It's foundational. So the first mark of Victorious Christian life is that you must belong to the Father. Second, victorious Christians continually praise God. Victorious Christians continually praise God. Verses 2 and 3, and I want you to notice these verses that there's praise that's going on in heaven. Look at verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters. Now, we've seen that expression before. We saw it back in chapter 1, verse 15, when John saw the vision of Jesus... And it said that his voice was like the roar of many waters. So some people would think, oh, that must be Jesus. I don't think this is Jesus here. 
And like the sound of loud thunder, we've seen loud thunder throughout Revelation and we'll continue to see it. Most generally, loud thunder has to do with the judgments of God. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here. This is a great multitude of people who are in heaven in constant praise to the Lord. That's what the loud voices are. That's what the thunder is here. It's a great multitude of people. You say, well, Pastor Mike, how do you know that? Because I go to Revelation chapter 19, verse 6, and look what it says here. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, a great multitude. And what did it sound like? It was like the roar of many waters. Hmm, that's what we got in verse 2. And like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Hmm, that's what we got in verse 2. Crying out hallelujah. It's a celebration of believers. It's a celebration of a multitude of people in heaven. And by the way, it's not just a, a celebration. It's not just loud noise. It's melodic. Look at the rest of verse 2. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on a harp. Now, not only is this a great multitude in heaven praising God, but it is a specific multitude. Verse 3. And they were singing a new song before the throne. Now notice, it's before the throne. Who sits on the throne? God sits on the throne. So they're singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. Now what that tells me is, is that this voice is not God from the throne. It is not the four living creatures and it is not the 24 elders because this voice is singing before them. So they're watching all this going on. They're not participating in it. The singing is to the Lord. So who is this group? I think we could go back to Revelation chapter 6 and the fifth seal. When John saw on the fifth seal the soul under the altar, he saw the souls of those who had been martyred for Christ in the tribulation period. They hadn't received their new glorified bodies. So you want to remember, if the, if the rapture happens at the beginning of the tribulation, which I believe it does, if the 24 elders represent the redeemed, glorified church. We've already received our resurrection body. But the believers, the people who become believers during that seven-year tribulation, they don't have a resurrection body and will not get one until the end of the tribulation. So their souls are the only thing that's in heaven. And their souls were under the altar. And I believe that's what this is talking about. It is the souls of those who have been martyred. They are singing a new song. They are singing the song of redemption. It is the martyred tribulation saints that we see in the sixth, uh, fifth seal in Revelation 6, and that we see in Revelation 7, 9, verses 13 through 14, which I just read to you a little bit ago. And then what happens here is this. The 144,000 will join in the celebration of praise as they learn that new song. See verse 3 in the middle? No one could learn. No one could learn. It didn't say no one could sing. It just said no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. The ones in heaven are singing it. The ones on earth are learning it. And they're going to sing together. Now, in a sense, I understand that all believers are redeemed from the earth, but these will be redeemed at a time of the worst evil, oppression, persecution, and martyrdom ever known to mankind. You know what I find interesting about this? We also are to be those who give continuous praise to God, are we not? And I don't know if you've thought about this or not, but when you worship the Lord through song and praise, you join the worship that is going on in heaven. You join with them. We are learning to worship here like we're going to worship there when we get there. And it won't just be on Sundays, by the way. It should be every day, right? Every day. Every day. 
Victorious Christians continually praise God. Thirdly, victorious Christians are pure. Look at verse 4. Victorious Christians are pure. It is these, referring back to the 144,000, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. That word defile means to soil or to stain. Now, you want to remember something. This is, a, this is such a, a significant statement here. Remember the period of time that we're in. We're in the tribulation period. The church has been raptured. The Holy Spirit is no longer in the world the same way that he was before in the sense of through the body of Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 tells us that there is a what that is restraining evil and there is a who that is restraining evil. We looked at that a few weeks ago. The what is the church and the who is the Holy Spirit. The church came into being when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, right? When the, church, when the Holy Spirit is taken out, when the church is raptured, the Holy Spirit will be taken out. Now, that doesn't mean he won't work in the world. He'll still convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He'll still be the source of regeneration. But there will be no church. Now, get this. His ministry of restraining and baptism will no longer be. There will no longer be a baptism by the Holy Spirit. Because the baptism by the Holy Spirit is the time at conversion when he places you into the body of Christ. Baptism is a placing into, just like up here. We place people into the water. When a person is baptized by the Spirit. They are placed into the body of Christ. Galatians 3.27 1 Corinthians 12.13 are references that tell us by one Spirit have you been baptized into one body. And, and uh, there's not a secondary baptism. There's no such thing as two baptisms. In Ephesians chapter 4 uh, Paul said there's one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. So there's only one and this is it. But see, there won't be any body of Christ to baptize believers into. There won't be any body of Christ to place them into because the body of Christ is where? They're in heaven. So people will be saved the same way they were saved in the Old Testament. You say, how were they saved in the Old Testament? Mean they have to kill lambs? No. They were saved through faith in the coming of Christ. Still saved by faith. But with the Holy Spirit out of the world, all restraint is gone. With the church out of the world, all restraint is gone. Immorality, violence, lewdness, perversion will run out of control. This will be a society who not only has completely abandoned God, it'll be a society that God has completely abandoned them. I don't want to live in that kind of a society. Now, I believe when John says here that they didn't defile themselves with women, that he means that they have been morally and sexually pure. And sexual immorality is one of the biggest vices in the church. It was back in the New Testament church. It was with the Old Testament people of Israel. I believe it's one of the biggest vices that we struggle with today. It is a big problem in the church. When Pastor Chad and I were going through the book of 1 Corinthians, how many times did Paul have to address sexual immorality with that church? He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13, verse 18, he said, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from it. To the church of Ephesus, he wrote this in Ephesians 5, 3, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And to the church in Thessalonica, he wrote this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, for this is the will of God. This is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness. What is it? That you abstain from sexual immorality. Let me just set the record straight this morning. You cannot be a victorious Christian and be sexually immoral. You cannot be. 
Matter of fact, let me go one step further. You cannot be a Christian if you continually practice a sexually immoral lifestyle. Cannot be a Christian. Why? Listen to what Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So who are the unrighteous? Well, don't be deceived. Here they are. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, and such were, past tense, some of you. He didn't say, that's what some of you are now. No, he said, if you're that now, if you're practicing that lifestyle now, you don't inherit the kingdom of God. Doesn't mean we don't fall into sexual sin. Doesn't mean that we're not tempted from time to time. Doesn't mean those sins don't happen. We don't live a continual, habitual lifestyle of that. That's what he's talking about. You cannot be a victorious Christian and be sexually immoral. Well, that's not the message we're hearing from churches today, is it? Victorious Christian living, my friend, is not seeing how close you can get to sin without falling in it, but intentionally staying as far away as possible. That's why Paul said in Romans 13, verses 13 and 14, he said, let us walk properly in the, as in the daytime, not in orgies, not in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ because the Lord Jesus Christ is opposite of all these things. And the Holy Spirit is trying to make us more like Jesus. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Listen, to be pure means to be holy as God is holy. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. You shall be holy for I, the Lord, am holy. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart. The pure in heart. For they shall see God. Well, obviously, if you're not pure in heart, you won't see God. That's equally true, right? The writer of Hebrews kind of stated it in a negative way. He said it like this in Hebrews 12, 14, Strive for peace with everyone and for, strive for, the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. My friend, God does not want a compromising church. He wants a pure church. He wants pure people. Victorious Christian living is that which belongs to God, which praises Him continually, which is pure. Now, fourthly, victorious Christians are devoted to Christ. They're devoted to Christ. Look at the middle of verse 4. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. The key word there is follow. Follow. This speaks of their loyalty and their faithfulness to Christ, no matter what they had to do or what they had to endure. You know what this is? This is discipleship. This is true discipleship right here. Apostle John, uh, Apostle John wrote this in John chapter 10, verse 27, recording what Jesus said. He said, my sheep, Jesus said, my sheep, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they do what? They follow me. They follow me. Let me give you a verse that's not on your outline, okay? You can write it down. 1 John 2, 6. 1 John 2, 6, whoever says he abides in Christ ought to walk in the same way that Christ walked. 
That's what it means to be devoted to Christ. You walk and live the same way he did. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 16, 24, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him deny himself. You know what it means? Deny your fleshly desires. Deny the flesh. In other words, what he's saying is you can't serve self and Christ at the same time. Either self is the master, the flesh is the master, or Christ is the master. There's not two masters here. So put his desires before your desires. Deny yourself and take up his cross and follow me. And to take up the cross is the ultimate example of devotion because it means that we are willing to pay any price, any price we need to pay for his glory in our lives. We will endure any amount of suffering. We'll endure any amount of shame, any amount of ridicule, any amount of humility. Why? Because wasn't that what happened to Jesus on the cross? Didn't he bore our shame? Didn't he bore, uh, didn't he bore our, our sin? Didn't he bore uh, ridicule? Didn't he, didn't he suffer for us? Wasn't it a humiliation for the Son of God to hang on a cross? So he says, now you take up your cross. And if that cross means suffering or shame or ridicule or humility, you do that for my sake. Because that's what I did for you. And that's what was significant about these 144,000. They were willing to go anywhere and do anything for Christ no matter what. And I think it's only fitting that we ask ourselves, where is our devotion to Christ? Are we willing to go to that extreme for the glory of Christ? Are we that devoted to him? The victorious Christians are devoted to Christ. Fifthly, devoted Christians live with purpose. Look at the end of verse 4. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits. Please circle that in your Bible. First fruits. First fruits for God and the Lamb. In other words, John says that the 144,000, their redemption had a specific purpose in that they were redeemed as a first fruit for God. And you say, now what in the world is a first fruit? Well, it's an Old Testament concept. Uh, you'll read about it if you want to in Deuteronomy chapter 26. Well, basically what it was is this. When you planted crops and the crops come up and they're ready to harvest, you would take the very first crops that come up to be harvested and you'd put them in a big basket and you'd take them to the priest and there you would devote them to the Lord. You would give them to God as an offering. It was unique and especially set apart for God. The first fruit offering spoke of that which was exclusively devoted to God and his service. These evangelists were set apart for a specific service for and to God. Serving the Lord was their first and their ultimate priority. It wasn't secondary. I think there's a great message for that in us, for, in that for us. If we're going to be victorious Christians, Serving God, being his first fruits, must be our highest purpose in life. Must be. I love what Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9, when he said this, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. I think that's the pattern of giving. I'm not huge on the tithe. I'm huge on first fruits giving. First fruit says we're going to take the best and ask, we're going to take the best and give it to the Lord. We're going to take the best of our money. But you know, I don't think it just relates to money. Now that verse just relates to money, but I think first fruits relates to a lot of other things. How about the best part of your day, the best part of your time? 
I think there's a first fruit uh, that we should have during the week. Uh, the Jews, it was the Sabbath. We're no longer under the laws of the Sabbath. But I believe there's a first fruit. We need to offer the best day to the Lord. We don't need to offer the best of our time to the Lord. Jesus said it best in Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God. He didn't say that's the only thing we had to seek. He just said this needs to be the highest thing you seek. This needs to be the first thing you seek. Everything else falls in underneath that. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All these things refers to all the other things that we tend to seek ahead of God. So is your life, is your life a first fruits offering to the Lord? Is your life and your purpose devoted to the service of Christ wherever he may lead you? Because victorious Christians live with purpose. That's our purpose, to serve him. Sixth, victorious Christians are truthful. They're truthful. Look at verse 5. And in their mouth no lie was found. Now I think there's a, a negative and a positive connotation to that phrase. In their life, in their mouth no lie was found. Negatively, I think it means this. They didn't, they didn't speak what was deceptive or false. And also, they didn't buy into the lies and deceptions of the Antichrist and his false system. Listen, you and I can't be victorious if our lives are not truthful. We can't be victorious if, if the, the things that come out of our mouth are deceptive or false. Ephesians chapter 4.25 tells us this, that we are to put away falsehood from among us and speak the truth to one another. Proverbs says that lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Matter of fact, Proverbs 6.17 says, There are six things the Lord hates, seven is an abomination to him, and the second one are lying lips. But not only is it falsehood and deception and lies that would come out of our mouth that shouldn't come out of our mouth, but it also is this, we don't want to buy into the lies and the deceptions of our culture. We can't be victorious if we're going to compromise the truths of God for the lies of our culture. And anything contrary to what God's word says is a lie. Do you understand that? I mean, what is the basis for truth in your life? I tell you, the basis for truth has to be the word of God. It has to be. Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. It has to be. So let me say to you, that sexual relationship outside of marriage is sin. Because the marriage bed is honorable and it is to be undefiled. Adulterers and fornicators, God will judge, Hebrews says. Same-sex marriage is sin, 1 Corinthians 6. Transgender is sin. Why? Because God made them male and female. That's the truth of the word. It's sin. Abortion is sin. Why? Because life begins at conception. The Word of God says those things. Stop listening to the lies of our society. Stop listening. And you say, well, I'll tell you what, if, if we don't embrace some of that, if we don't compromise some of that, they'll cancel us out. You know, we're in this cancel culture now. They'll cancel us out. I'll tell you this. I don't know about you, but I'll tell you for myself, I would rather be canceled out by my society than canceled out by my God. Stop allowing our culture to tell you what is true and right and loving and fair. Let God's word speak to those things. 
God has spoken and what he said is true and everything needs to be measured to that truth. Everything. So that's the negative side of this. I think there's a positive side to this phrase that in their mouth no lie was found and that's this. It, it means that they accurately and unashamedly spoke God's truth. They spoke it. And we must speak God's truth. Now listen, what I just said to you, that's for you. You're believers. You know, when we go out in the world, we, they're our mission field, not our enemy. We need to love them and share the gospel with them, but we can't love them by speaking lies to them. We must speak God's truth lovingly but firmly. Ephesians 4.15, but speaking the truth in love. Love without truth is compromise. Truth without love is harshness. Both of them are extremes that God cannot use. Truth with love honors Christ. Honors Christ. But can I say this? You can't speak the truth if you don't know the truth, right? You can't speak it if you don't know it. The psalmist in Psalm 15 says this, verses 1 and 2, O Lord, who, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? In other words, who's going to be close to you? Who's going to be close to you, God? And the answer, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Some of your versions say from his heart. Both are right. But I'll tell you this. You'll never speak truth from your heart if the truth not in your heart. And would you please not buy the lie that's being taught in churches today? That you really can't know what God's truth means. That there are just so many interpretations of the Bible that nobody can know what it means. Do you really believe that we have a God who would want to communicate himself to us and then make it so confusing that we couldn't ever understand it? That's ludicrous. You know the people that say that? The believers that say that, is, uh, they are just putting up a phony defense for not having to live according to what God says. That's what it is. Well, number seven. Victorious Christians are blameless. They're blameless. Very end of verse five. For they are blameless. Wasn't hard to come up with that point, was it? Now, this does not mean they were sinless. Rather, what it means is their reputation was without accusation. They could not be accused of wrongdoing. That's, that's God's goal for each one of us. Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 13 says this, You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 119 verse 1, he said, Blessed are those whose way is blameless. God's favor is upon those whose way is blameless. Well, how is our way going to be blameless? We walk in the law of the Lord, the word of God. Paul wrote to the church of Philippi and he said to the Philippian Christians, he said he wanted them to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Can people look at your life right now and rightfully accuse you of wrong? Because if they can, there's something wrong with that. You know, this isn't an issue about us not being accused. Jesus said, blessed are those, blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely. You're going to be accused. Just make sure that the accusations are false. We'll be accused. Just don't let those accusations be true. So what does a victorious Christian look like? Well, he belongs to the Father. She worships God continually. They're pure. They're devoted to Christ. They live with purpose. They're truthful. And they're blameless. 
By the way, do any of you here do any of these things perfectly? No. This isn't about trying to make ourselves acceptable to God by doing these things. That's works for salvation. This is about doing these things through the power of the Holy Spirit because God has already accepted us in Christ. This has to do with desire and direction, not perfection. And it's the fulfillment, by the way, of Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Look at this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Get this now. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Worshiping God continually, being pure, being devoted to Christ, living with purpose, being truthful, being blameless is working out your own salvation. It's working out your own salvation. You know what the good news is? You don't have to do it on your own. Matter of fact, here's the good news, better news. You can't do it on your own. You have the power of the Holy Spirit living in you. And that's why Paul went on to say this in verse 13 of Philippians 2. For it is God who works in you. Isn't that great news? You work out your salvation. That's your responsibility. But it is God who works in you. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. My friend, God's, our world is in need of seeing Christians who are victorious. I'll even go a step further. The church of Jesus Christ is in need of seeing Christians who live victorious. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of it, the truth of it. We, we live by it. We are not ashamed of it. We embrace it. We cannot be these things unless your spirit empowers us. But these are the things that you want us to be. We thank you that we're sealed by your Holy Spirit, the very foundation to be able to worship and praise you continually, to be pure, to be devoted, to have our lives lived with specific purpose, to be truthful and to be blameless can only come because your Spirit does your work in our hearts. So, Lord, we want to be victorious Christians, not so that people can pat us on the back and praise us, but so that we can give glory to the Christ who redeemed us and set us free. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.